Welcome to Foundation Christian Church. We're glad that you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit foundationcitrusheights.com. We're going to do Bible teaching time. If you do not have a Bible, would you please put a hand up and a volunteer is going to bring one to you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Take it home. It's yours. If you have a Bible and know your way around, go to Acts 2. 42 through 47, I promise this is the last week. Some of you have felt like your arm was behind your back and you've been crying, uncle, uncle. But there's just been too much beautiful stuff. Let me briefly mention giving and one announcement. Uh, Giving, the silver bucket is at the back, but I think you guys know that. If you love Jesus and if foundation is your home, I want to always encourage you to be generous. If you are a guest who's investigating faith, I never want you to put money in that bucket or giving online, ever. Now, who can tell me, because I've said it a million times in five years, I want one of you to tell me, why is it potentially dangerous to put money in the bucket before deciding you want to be a Christian? Why is it potentially dangerous? Ah, amen, amen. There is something in the human heart, the way that the human heart tends to do religion, is that we're trying to get God on our side. I'm trying to do enough stuff that God owes me something, like I can put him into my debt. That is how the human heart defaults. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is completely opposite. We obey and we love and we serve and we give and we go on mission trips and we do all this crazy stuff because he has already loved us through the cross and washed away our sin. Is that different? That's different. He has already saved me, therefore good works flow from my joy and from my gratitude. I'm not doing good stuff hoping that it was enough on some cosmic scale at the end. That's not how Christianity works. Christianity says all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. So you already know how the scale looks. Your scale looks like this, bro. So does mine. Everybody's scale looks the same. And it's tipped by the weight of the glory of Christ's cross. That's what changes everything. So that's our giving time. Thank you guys for those of you who are faithful and steady and generous. Um, One announcement before the Bible teaching time. I thought he was just teaching the Bible. Before the formal Bible teaching time. Next week is cookout. It's going to be delicious. It's going to be fun. And I want you to know, announcements are really scary for the preacher because asking you guys to do something naturally puts me in a spot like, Greg, are you going to do it? Right? And I'll have you know, I've got three friends coming next week, and I'm really, really excited because I'm an introvert, and that's hard for me. Can we just, can we do it? My name's Greg. I'm an introvert. <laughs> Hi, Greg. It's hard, okay? But we are going to have a blast. There's going to be a watermelon eating contest. There's going to be a bounce house. It's going to be a good time right after the service next week. So I want you to not just think about the theory of maybe, sort of, kind of, maybe inviting somebody. I want you to think, who am I bringing Who am I bringing? And don't make them do the religious sing for your supper thing. If they are genuinely not interested in coming into this room, there are reasons for that, by the way, valid reasons. Tell them to come at 10.30 and eat our food. That is okay. I think my my friends might be doing that. I'm trying to get them to come at nine, but it's probably gonna be a 10.30 thing. That's okay. Question, yeah. Was there gonna be a bounce house too? Yes. And if I can get Amazon to move it, I'm going to get one of those little tykes bounce houses as well so the two-year-olds don't get clobbered by the nine-year-olds. You guys know what I'm saying? So 
I saw one on Amazon. It's just a matter of uh, ordering it and hoping it can get here in a couple days. Amazon is doing really well with that whole two-hour rule nowadays. It's like, oh, it, it, it's here. Thank you, Lord. Anyway, but yeah, hopefully we'll have two of them. Any other thoughts, comments, questions? So let's, let's do the math. If you guys each bring three, hey, now we run out of food. Praise the Lord. Okay. This series, I called it the crest or the family crest, the family creed, sorry, which is built off of this symbol. What is a family all about? How do families communicate their values? In the 21st century, that's a great question. 800 years ago in Western Europe, it was easy. We paint these images on our family crest of this is what we value, this is who we are. In our family, we... How do you finish that sentence? In our family, we, there are lots of potential answers. Uh, and our brother Luke, who wrote the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit, he said that in our family, we are devoted to the apostles' teaching and we're devoted to fellowship, right? This is what this text is. Uh, so let's read it together one more time, loud and proud. Excuse me. Again, repetition helps us in memorization. I'm going to do it if the button works. All right. Oh, no, it worked twice. One, two, three, go. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. So, quick, oh, let me go back. I don't want to get to that question yet. Um, I want to jog our memories and bring us along if we weren't here. In our family, we are devoted to the apostles' teaching. That's these 12 guys who walked with Jesus. They were with him the whole time. You guys think I'm forgetting Judas. No, no, no. Matthias was there the whole time. The eyewitnesses in our 21st century clamoring for evidence, they cared about evidence too. What do the guys say who walked with him and ministered with him, preached on his behalf? He sent out the 72. There are all kinds of folks around us who saw Jesus, followed Jesus, listened to all his teaching for three and a half years. And so I might be a devout Jew from Alexandria. I was a couple hundred miles away for all of this. I might be a Gentile in Turkey, and I'm hearing about it 15 years after the claim that Jesus raised from the dead. I might be a Californian 2,000 years after, right? Everybody cares about evidence. What did the apostles teach? They said, that Jesus was the promised Jewish Messiah. It was him. 
that there's no contradiction with what Christians call the first two-thirds of the Bible. This is what God was promising all along, and he lived the life we should have lived but couldn't. He died the death that we should have died and now don't have to. We're devoted to that message. If we love Jesus Christ, if we care what our brother Luke wrote in Acts 2, we are devoted to what the apostles taught. We're also devoted to the fellowship, koinonia. We discovered that the brotherhood and sisterhood of the family of saints involves common tasks. We saw it right in the scripture. Raising money to send Paul onto the next city was called koinonia, right there in the text. So it's not just the warm fuzzies. Warm fuzzies are great if we're buddies and we're hanging out. That's all well and good. But anything communal, the communal life that is born out of each of us being forgiven of our sins by Jesus, any part of the communal life is koinonia. It is fellowship. Our prayers together are fellowship. Teaching one another is fellowship. The stuff that happens naturally when the Spirit is in his people and we're even halfway yielding to him, that is koinonia, and we're devoted to it. That means we pursue it. We are devoted to sharing meals in our family. Any hungry people say amen? Amen, hallelujah. And what did we learn as we were exploring the text about hospitality and meals? It's really not just about physical sustenance, is it? Okay. If, if I let you up to my front door, but no further, you're a salesman. If I let you maybe into the living room, but no further, maybe we're acquaintances, or it's your first time at a Bible study we're hosting. When I let you into my kitchen and sit down at the kitchen table, it's a little different. When we're breaking bread, it's different. And it's really different when we're making the meal together and you know how I like my uh, dishwasher loaded. Now we're really... <laughs> don't, don't raise your hand, but just think about it. Think about it right now. Emily and I had this conversation starting a decade ago. Close your eyes and ask yourself, how many people in the church have cleaned up, in my kitchen, have cleaned up from a meal? Who has picked up dishes? Who has washed dishes? Who has sorted stuff? Hey, where do your forks go? How many people in the church? It's not the only measurement of koinonia, but it is one measurement. You could flip it. How many people's kitchens? Maybe I've got a tiny little kitchen. I live in a studio apartment. How many other people in the church, how many of their kitchens, I've been in there and I've helped wash dishes after a meal? It's a beautiful question to ask. There's no Bible verse that says exactly how things need to go down, but it's a beautiful question to ask nonetheless. In our family, we're devoted to sharing in meals. We're also devoted to prayer. Devoted, praying to God. Prayer is talking to God, right? But we're doing it with each other and for each other. We're devoted to it. So it's not something that happens once a week for 30 seconds because somebody once upon a time said, well, you ought to have a perfunctory prayer real quick before you start your worship service. That's, that's not devotion, right? That's not devotion. Devotion is we are excited to call on the name of the Lord. I, when I'm not excited, I know it's the right and wise thing to do. So we're going to call out together right now. I'm at the end of my rope, so I'm going to ask my friend to pray for me right now. That is devotion. Uh, doing stuff only when we feel like it, we're going to be tossed back and forth by the culture, right? If your emotions are in charge of everything. Devotion goes a layer deeper than emotions, doesn't it? Devotion, perhaps, you could argue... It's either become a habit or it is becoming a habit. 
if you're truly devoted. And the family of faith, in our family, we have a deep and reverent fear of God. We talked about that last week. It's not the fear of being in a lion's cage and the lion is hungry. That's abject terror. It's the type of fear, the type of respect that keeps you on the other side of the fence in the first place. If you have a healthy fear of what this thing can do, you're going to stay here and you're going to read that little plaque and you're going to go, oh, honey, isn't that cute? Look at the lion. You're going to stay here because God is big and he is holy. And as our brother Isaiah said, I'm toast, Greg Standard translation. I'm a sinful person in the presence of the sinless one. I'm going to die. And the reason he doesn't die is because God makes allowance for him. Anybody read that one? The angel comes and brings the tongue from the altar. That's, that's not by accident. That altar that Isaiah is anticipating is the cross of Jesus Christ. We're absolutely going to be able to enter into the presence of the Holy One without getting incinerated. It's called the blood of Jesus washing our sins away. We are devoted to being reverent in our fear of the God who we love. Is Jesus your friend? Say yes. Just like he was the friend of Abraham. But God being the friend of Abraham didn't mean he wasn't the holy and just one who sat on the throne. It might be hard to reconcile those two ideas, but the Bible says they go together. They go together. He doesn't stop being king simply because he loves you. In fact, his love only has power because of his authority. If you, how many of you would love to have your best friend get elected president of the United States? You think that might go well for you? Huh? At minimum, you're going to get to like have brunch in the Rose Garden. Something cool. Get a couple of pictures at bare minimum. Something cool is going to happen. What if the one who has loved you deeply raises himself from the dead? Things going to go well for you? Yeah. Yeah, that sermon hadn't even started yet. So anyway, that's where we've been the last six or seven weeks. And we're today talking about what perhaps might be the scariest phrase in the entire thing. We prayed this morning. Uh, I'm going to tell this story one more time. I just shared it with the prayer huddle at 8.30. Um, back in March or April, I put, we have a cross here in this room, and I brought it here and replaced the pulpit. I put the cross here, and I asked you guys to take your fears and your worries and to write them down on sticky notes and to bring them up here and put them on the cross. You guys know what the number one, because I read them because... I love you, and I need to know how to take care of you. You know the number one thing that we are worried about and we are concerned about as a church? And it wasn't even close, by the way. It was number one, and then it was number two, three, four. Five. Grown children who have walked away from God. It's not even close. That is our number one prayer request as a church. And those of us who are younger, we're not outside of it. We feel that terror right? We pray for our babies every night before they go, God, I could put kindling around this, but only you can light the fire. That's what Jesus is trying to tell Nicodemus in John 3. The movement of the Spirit is mysterious. The end of this text says something very scary. 
And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That's a really exciting verse. When you read it the first time, you're like, yay, people are getting saved, revival, woohoo! 3,000 people just got saved at Peter's last sermon. The church is growing each day. The baptismal doesn't even get a chance to be dried out because they have to baptize more people the next day and the next day and the next day. This is exciting. This is wonderful. And all of that is a historical snapshot of what God was doing at that exact moment. Does every local congregation get to experience revival every single day? No, it was a historical moment. Is Christ still the head of his church and there's revival happening somewhere on planet earth at all times? I believe absolutely so. I believe so. And you follow Voice of the Martyrs and other groups and you can hear very clearly, you're like, wait, what happened? They had a service in Cairo and 2,000 people came to Christ in a Muslim country. And like, we can't, dang California, come on, man. You know, <laughs> right? Is Christ still on his throne? Is he still the head of his church? Is he still growing this thing? The reason that's terrifying, because if you're like me, you're a sinner and we're control freaks. And I want to be in charge of making sure that my loved ones come to Christ. I want to put my fingerprints all over that because I don't like God's timing. I'm preaching my sermon before preaching my sermon, but I don't like the way God rules his universe. Is it just me? Am I the only member of that club? Okay. Particularly when it's something good. I have felt foolish, just personal testimony time. We're going on, what, 18, 19 months of war between Ukraine and Russia. Every time I think about it, I ask God to stop that war. And yet he knows what he's doing. He can stop it the second he wants to stop it. So I pray it, but then I have to trust, I take my hands off of the results, don't I? Because I'm not God, and if I put my hands on it, I'm not trusting him. I'm disrespecting him. I'm dishonoring him. I think I'm smarter than him. I think I'm wiser than him. I think that I love the world more than he loves the world, all of which is crazy. All of which is crazy. So something that's not in the notes, but I put it as an introductory thought. God said all the way back, really, from Genesis 3, but Genesis 12 in particular, that he would grow his family, but sometimes we don't see God growing his family. Does that make sense? Christian, it is, it is a theory that people are coming to Christ because maybe, we, maybe a few people did get baptized, but that was months ago, right? Or you've been praying for your sister to come to Christ, and you've been praying for 35 years, or you hear about people coming to Christ in Sri Lanka, but that's very, it's nice, but it's very emotionally divorced from you because you don't know anybody in Sri Lanka. So it's very theoretical. He said in Genesis to Abraham, he found a pagan moon-worshiping Iraqi and said, I'm gonna make you into a great people. Did he say because Abraham was awesome or did he say for the glory of his own name? You don't even have to look that one up. It wasn't because Abram was awesome. And he says, through you, most of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Did I quote it right, my Bible scholars? I got a strong no from over here. All is what God said to Abraham. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. Huh, that's interesting. In Ezekiel 38, 36, he said he's going to put his law into our hearts that we might fear him and worship him. Huh. Jesus' name told us in Matthew 1.21, the angel told Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. Why? Because he's going to save people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. It means God saves. 
God saves. This is the best news in the world because he loves you more than you love you. And it's terrifying in my flesh because I want to control it and I want to put my fingerprints on it. Just like everything else God has spoken about, my flesh wants to own it and control it because God's just not smart as Greg, I guess. It's so silly when we say it out loud, isn't it? Would we ever write on the proverbial chalkboard, I, Greg Kaiser, am smarter than the creator of the universe? I would never write that. But what does my behavior reveal? Jesus, in Matthew 16, 18, when Peter declares that he, Jesus is the Messiah, he says, on this rock, on this declaration, I will build my church. Who's going to build Jesus' church? Smart pastors who went to conferences, most likely. No? Oh, you guys are laughing. I went to so many good conferences. The latest methodology is going to build the church. Is that what Jesus said? And he didn't even say, this is the hard one, he didn't even say the church will build the church. See, we get it twisted, brothers and sisters. He told us, go and make disciples. You share my gospel and people are going to respond to it and you teach them how to follow me. That doesn't mean that you're building my church. I am still building my church. I'm doing it in you. I'm doing it through you. That doesn't make you the engineer or the architect over this thing. You're down there with a hammer getting minimum wage. That's what you're getting. (laughs) But better is one day being a nobody in the kingdom of God than a thousand days anywhere else. I love swinging a hammer for King Jesus. I don't need to know whether with this wall's going to go there or that wall's going to... That is above my pay grade. King of the universe is building his church. Jesus said so. So, discussion question. Here's what you guys are going to chat about. What do we tend to do when it feels like God is not delivering on a promise? We've heard in scripture that he's going to build his church. He's going to seek and save the lost. What do we tend to do when it seems like God is not coming through? Introduce yourself to at least two folks nearby you, even if you think you already know their name. Tell them your name and then chat for this. I'll give you 90 seconds.
Who wants to share an idea or two that your group came up with? What do we do when it feels like God's not delivering? Frustration and anger. Yeah, I talk about it and pray about it, but only after I blow off some steam. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great church t-shirt? We are devoted to prayer right after we cuss at God. Just being honest. <laughs> Just being honest. What are some other responses when we feel like God's not coming through? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, try to do it ourselves. What else do we do? Feel like God's not delivering. Uh, continue in prayer when we feel like he's not delivering. Yeah. Wait patiently, continue in prayer. That would be a great response. Mm -hmm. Anybody know that your worry can exist entirely within a good theological framework? If you know that God doesn't owe you a yes, you can worry about that. The question is, in the midst of my worry, am I judging him? God, do I believe you're evil in any way? Did you do me dirty if you say no to this prayer request? I have to search my own heart on that one. I have to prepare myself for the no. Isn't that laying everything down? I didn't really lay it all at the altar if I'm like, God, I will worship you as long as it's a yes. I will praise you as long as it's a yes. I will sing to you as long as it's a yes. Who's really in charge in that dynamic? Yeah, this is a genie. You're rubbing the genie and, you, and he owes you as opposed to a deity that you worship. Great. Any other answers before we move on? What do we tend to do? Keep praying is a great response, yes. Uh-huh. Absolutely. That's a powerful, powerful prayer. I tend to throw a temper tantrum that rattles my three-year-old. There you go. There you go. If, it, if your three-year-old is not disturbed, you haven't really thrown a tantrum yet. Oh, so, yeah. Believing you're not worthy. Oh, going to a place of, yeah, whoo, ah, uh, ouch. Maybe I wasn't worthy of a Yes. Maybe God's not saying yes to this because I wasn't worthy of a yes, which is very similar to, did I do enough good stuff for God to, the vending machine Jesus? Did I put in enough quarters? Yeah, yeah. All right. What are some reasons I take salvation into my own hands? Note takers, I hope that's all of you. Grab a pen. I don't have a pen. Steal your neighbor's pen. <laughs> Stealing's against the Ten Commandments. Well, Dagnabbit, you've already sinned 40 times today. Just one more. Okay. Impatience with God. Anybody feeling that one? He might say yes. He's just not doing it on my timetable. I'm going to tell you quickly a story, just in case you, if you're new to church, you might not know this one. The very first king of Israel was rejected by God, ultimately because of impatience. He was supposed to wait for Samuel to come and perform some sacrifices before the army went to war. And Saul is sitting there going, oh my goodness, I can see uh, that my, I'm, I'm slipping soldiers here. My army is dwindling and I've got this huge opponent to deal with. I can see my resources. I can see the enemy's resources, but in my faithlessness, I can't see the endless resources of the armies of heaven, can I? 
This is meant to stand over and against David and his sling and his five stones and Goliath. Guys, the 15-year-old boy can see the armies of heaven. King Saul can't. Guys, I'm impatient with God because I can't see the armies of heaven. And my faithlessness gets exposed. He ought to be doing it on my timetable. And so Saul offers these sacrifices, and when Samuel shows up, he rebukes him and lets you know, you've been torn from your leadership of this kingdom the same way this cloth was just torn from my tunic by your hand. Your line is not going to rule. Like, the promise is going to pass to somebody else. You don't trust me, Saul. Isn't it funny how that was 3,000 years ago and it's really the same today? God is saying to people, do you trust me? Will you trust me? Have I behaved in a trustworthy way would be the question. I just read, was it Psalm 106 I read yesterday? Almost the entire Psalm is a recounting of God faithfully delivering Israel out of Egypt and how he is faithful and how he is faithful and how he is faithful. But in between each act of God's faithfulness is some horrible unbelief on the part of Israel. It's going back and forth and back and forth on purpose. And it's exulting in the fact that God won't quit on us. I'm impatient. He hasn't had us walk through the uh, Red Sea on dry land in like 72 hours. It's been at least three days since I've seen a miracle. So I'm going to start grumbling against Moses. Water from a rock, Krispy Kreme donuts from heaven all over the ground, just not on Saturdays. Five minutes later, complaining again. Guys, church folks haven't changed in 3,000 years. We all do it. We all do it. Impatience with God is one possible uh, reason that I take things into my hands. It sounds like this. Again, these are the sentences we would never, ever say out loud, but this is how it sounds. God was running late, so I took care of it. <laughs> or fear that people I love won't love God. That's a reason I might try to take things into my own hands. I am terrified of not getting the result that I want to have happen. Or limited perspective. It sounds like this. There aren't many people in Citrus Heights becoming Christians right now. Therefore, the global church must be in crisis. Again, we would never say that in our out loud voice, would we? Hmm? My friends and family, I can count X number of people who have gladly worshiped Jesus in X number of years. And man, that ratio, that's just not as much or as fast as I would hope. I want people to know the God that made them. I want them to experience the love that I experience. But God doesn't seem to be doing things on my timetable. And, and I, I just, I don't know. If things in one spot are not looking great for the church, the human brain takes that and typifies, and we think that's normal. Until we hear that there's revival there, and there's revival there, and this amazing thing is happening there. Many of you guys are already going to know this. This is a cultural event, not a specific movement of missionaries, just a cultural event. One of the biggest movements of the gospel the last 22 years has been cultural Muslims responding to 9-11. People all over the world who are like, I'm Muslim, do you, 
you know, pray the prayers? Do you go pray on Friday? Do you do? Well, not really. Why are you call yourself Muslim? Well, I was born in Indonesia. We're all Muslim. It's like thinking you're a Christian because you were born in Alabama. And these folks, many of them have been reading the newspapers and studying and reading the Quran, some of them for the very first time since 9-11 going, there's no way that's what we believe, right? There's not been one movement. There's not been one preacher like Billy Graham. There's not been one denomination. It has just been people asking themselves, is this what we believe? Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Muslims have come to Christ in the last 22 years. You would never ask for 9-11 to happen, but God can work out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not most, all. Do we have a limited perspective? Yeah. I want you to imagine that you're in this room and there is one window that's the only source of light. And your face is up against this window and you see a little bit of orange and a little bit of blue, a little bit of white. And you come to the conclusion, this window is orange and blue and white. And in fact, those are the only three colors on planet Earth, orange, blue, and white, because this is what I can see. This is my experience. And one day, someone frees you and you're able to take a step back. You step back 40 feet and you see this. Oh, not only is there more than what I could see, it was clearly designed by somebody and it is beautiful. We are going to be in heaven exulting and praising God for eternity. Why? Because we're going to see all of his manifold wisdom, everything he was doing all along in seeking and saving the lost. He's been trying to tell us all throughout the scriptures, I've got this. I've got this. Another important question, what does it look like when I take salvation into my own hands? Let's get practical. What does it actually look like? Um, let's start with the story of Abraham, okay? This is not the story that we highlight in Sunday school with the children. But again, if you're new to church, I want you to know the story. Genesis 16, God had given an unbelievable promise to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. His descendants would be more uh, numerous than the stars in the sky. And he and his wife were up there in years and there was just no practical earthly way that God was gonna follow through. And he did something that's very weird and perverse to our 21st century ears, but it was very normal at the time. Sarah says, hey, why don't you have a child through my handmaid, my servant? This is what you did. Like, this is what, you know, imagine a patriarchal culture where all your wealth is going to pass primarily to the firstborn son. Your family ends in a very real way. It's, it's an economic crisis. It's without a firstborn son who's going to take care of mom culturally and legally. There's so many problems. Um, so, uh, as, and I'm not meaning to minimize anything in our experience. Childlessness here in 2023 is, is an absolute emotional and relational crisis. For them, it was an existential crisis. Like women can't be represented in court, can't own, yet in some cultures couldn't like even just hold wealth. It was a gargantuan issue. It was bigger than big. And so Sarah says, which was very culturally normal, hey, I have a handmaiden, why don't you sleep with her and her son will be ours. And that, that just really speaks kind of to slavery. 
Hagar did not even have her own personhood. If she got pregnant, the son belonged to her master and mistress. Like, that's, that's a slavery statement, if anything else. Um, so Abraham and Sarah are doing what? They are trying to fulfill God's promises, but they're fulfilling it? Do you hear how broken that is? If you made the promise, you have to fulfill it. If you do not fulfill the promise, you're a liar. Am I going to write that one on the chalkboard? Greg Kaiser hereby certifies that the king of the universe is a liar. Oh, I would never write that, would I? But does my behavior reveal that belief? I would never write that. Abraham did, though. Sarah did. Here are some practical ways for us. It looks like when I start taking salvation into my hands, I push someone to a profession of faith. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It is loving to present the gospel to somebody and to remind them that riding the fence gets splinters in dark places. Not making a decision is a decision, right? Gently but firmly, consistently going, hey, Jesus claimed he was the savior of the world, offering to wash away your sins. We talked about this. Joseph Smith never offered to die and wash away your sins. Buddha never offered to wash away your sins. Nobody has made this claim. Decide for yourself if it's true and then respond in worship or decide that it's a lie. Make up your mind, right? That is different. That is good and healthy. What is not healthy? You gonna help her with her phone, somebody? Um, what is not healthy is this good-hearted grandma going, hey, sweetie, would you like to give your heart to Jesus and get baptized and then we can go to Leatherby's for ice cream or do you want to go to hell like your Uncle Joe? <laughs> not helpful. Not helpful, right? It might be well-intentioned, but not helpful. So pushing somebody in this emotional moment. Guys, if you really see the face of Jesus as beautiful and worship, no one has to shove you into that. Right? Did somebody put a gun to your head and tell you to marry your girl? No, you were already over your head, head over heels. No one had to put a gun to your head. All right. Prayerless ministry. What does it look like when I take salvation into my own hands? I do stuff with my hands and feet and calendar busily until I don't have time to pray. I don't ask the Lord of the harvest to bring the harvest. I don't ask the Lord of the harvest to bring the workers. I sow and I water, 1 Corinthians 3, but asking the Lord to bring the growth? Oh, I don't have time to ask the Lord to bring the growth. I've signed up for five ministries and we don't pray in any of them before, after, during. I serve, I do, 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 I do. It's Sabbathlessness. There's no day in the week to recognize God's presence, celebrate God's presence and beauty. It's, hey, king of the universe, I know you needed a nap. Don't worry, I've got this. The chalkboard is blasphemous today, isn't it? Man, what about minimizing the cost of discipleship? I'm going to take salvation into my own hands. Here's what I need to do. I need to put on my best salesman outfit 
and make sure the value proposition is really good. Hey, if you're considering signing up, you want to be on Team Jesus, I'm going to highlight all the benefits. They're going to be in big print. And then down in the very small print, I'm going to make sure that in the small print, I let you know he's laying claim to your entire life. I'm not going to mention that, or if I mention it, it's going to be really quick and it's going to be really quiet because I've got to get you across the finish line. I've got to get you to the front of this altar, crying some tears and, and, and praying a prayer. I, I met with a buddy uh, on Friday who loves Jesus and he talked about the sinner's prayer. He said, the sinner's prayer, if it's done wrong, if we trust the sinner's prayer to save somebody, we are practicing witchcraft. And I completely agree with him. Witchcraft is, here is this set of words, it'll produce this spiritual result. Pray this poem while you sacrifice a cat or whatever, it'll produce this result. That's witchcraft. We do not get people into the kingdom of God by them saying words, amen? amen. We present the gospel of Jesus Christ, we present it, and then the Holy Spirit lights the flame, or doesn't. And we have to trust him, because he brings the harvest, I'm going to minimize it. I'm not going to talk about the cross. I'm not going to talk about your sexuality, that Jesus is going to reform that. I'm not going to talk about your money because Jesus is going to come into that room too with a broom. I'm not going to talk about your marriage. Jesus is coming into that room too with a broom and a dustpan and some Windex. He's coming into every room unapologetically, not to be a jerk, but because he loves you so much and he knows the blessing on the other side. As he changes our character to be more and more like Jesus, there is blessing for us, blessing for those around us, glory for God, right? I'm gonna minimize the cost though if I am taking on the role of a salesperson. Which guys, I love you, that's crazy. The more and more we know the beauty of our savior and exult, I don't have to be ashamed of the small print. There's a reason I have said to you guys for five years over and over again, Jesus is gonna take over every room in your life. Why? I'm not embarrassed by the small print. You're not either. I know, I've listened to you guys for five years. You are not embarrassed in the least at saying, oh yeah, Jesus is gonna take over every square inch of your life. It's gonna be great. That only sounds like bad news to the flesh that wants to be in control. We're on the other side. That's the best news ever. Jesus running my life? Yes, please. I'm not going to minimize the cost of discipleship if God is big and I trust him and I'm glad he's on his throne. Last question we're going to ask today. How can I joyfully embrace the assignment God has given me in his family growth plan? We've done some deconstruction. Okay, God brings the growth, but surely there's stuff that he has told his church to do. And if I love Jesus, what, what's my role? Uh, there are five things I'm thinking about. And we're going to blaze through these. You guys could have filled these on your own. Gaze at the character of God through Scripture. When you open the Bible, make sure you're trying to find God. That is not a foregone conclusion. The Pharisees failed. Make sure you're trying to look at the God who inspired that text, not just the text. Because God has told me to worship him, adore him, cherish him. And what happens when you're adoring and cherishing it overflows in right living. It overflows in praise and in verbal testimony, all of which puts the gospel out there to a lost and dying world. Uh, remind your siblings of the character of God as part of genuine fellowship. If you're a guest, when I say siblings, I'm talking about your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love Jesus, I love Jesus. We're siblings now, we've been adopted into the same family. Genuine koinonia 
You, you, you can remind yourself of the goodness and beauty of God that he is gargantuan and this builds your faith in him in those dark moments. I can trust him to run his universe. I can trust him to build his church. But who here has ever been a faithless spot and you needed somebody around you to trust God for you? We call that a Tuesday in the Kaiser household. My faith is weak, but somebody else is going to trust God for me, dig a hole in that roof, and lower me right down to the feet of Jesus because I didn't have it in me. Guys, everybody has two legs that won't work. It's just a matter of which legs. I've told you before, I've had the hardest time trusting God with money. When it comes to money, I need brothers and sisters who will dig a hole in that roof and lower me at Jesus' feet. For some of you, it's sexuality. For some of you, it's marriage or singleness. For some of you, like... There is always some kind of a way where I'm really, really struggling to trust God and I need siblings to trust God for me, to pray for me, to pray with me, to challenge me, to encourage me that God is on his throne in that area. Validate the gospel with good works. This is the entire book of James. The gospel is shown to be true by Christians loving and serving God and people. That's how you show, you illustrate that God has changed you. I thought this picture was cute. There are a thousand ways to be kind. There are a thousand ways to show the love of God to somebody. And James is saying, no, your good works don't get you into heaven. They show that that's where you're headed. Does that make sense? Kindness toward others in big sacrificial ways, Jesus-sized ways. Not quite Jesus-sized ways, but Jesus-modeled ways. Show that there is a Holy Spirit inside us transforming us, that we are not the Lord of our life. If I'm not transformed, I'm still the Lord of my life. This isn't Christianity. Make sense? That was a whole sermon right there in like two sentences. Um, teach your friends, last two, and then we're gonna get out of here. Teach your friends about God's nature, his character, and his gospel. This sentence is much longer than it was 80 years ago. 80 years ago, it was, invite your friend to church because he moved into town. Of course, he's going to probably join a church. There was a cultural belief that God existed. There was a cultural belief that not only does he exist, but he has authority to tell us right and wrong. Things like the Ten Commandments were universally pretty much accepted in the culture 70, 80 years ago. Now, I have to tell you that God exists, and not just have to, but get to, teach you that God exists, teach you that he is holy and he has all authority to define right and wrong. So what does that mean? Greg doesn't have that authority. I have to teach you his character, that he's beautiful and powerful and loving and just, that he's patient with sinners. All of these attributes of God are answering your questions. How come there's so much uh, horrible stuff in the world? Because he loves us so much he gave us free will. Glad you asked. How come hell on earth is only Because God is so patient with sinners. Glad you asked. God's nature answers every one of your friend's questions. Every single one. Tell them what he is like, that he is authoritative, he is pre-existent, he is bigger. Like he can speak time and matter and energy into existence at the same moment. And that wasn't hard for him. He didn't break a sweat. So yes, he has the authority to tell us about how the human existence could best be lived. He designed it. I have to teach my friend all of this. I can't assume all of this knowledge and just say, well, would you like to pray a prayer? That's not gonna happen. If it does happen, it's a miracle, but there has to be an understanding of what on earth has Jesus done in the world? Why do I care? Why do I care if Jesus died for our sins if I haven't embraced the idea that I've done anything morally wrong? Person, There's so much 
that has to be shared, and I just put it in these four words, nature of God, character of God, and his gospel, that Christ came and died to save sinners. And then the Great Commission. Teach your friends how to follow Jesus. I, I, I want to be really clear. The Great Commission does not say, go and make converts of all nations. That's just not what it says. If we think that the Great Commission has been obeyed because somebody came to Christ, we're wrong. I'm glad that person came to Christ, but that is not the fulfillment of the Great Commission. That is the first part. They came to Christ. Now we get to do what? Teaching them to obey all that I commanded them. I'm going to show you. I'm going to model it for you. I'm going to verbally tell you in a small group or a Sunday school class or one-on-one getting coffee. I'm going to teach you this is what following Jesus looks like. And it's my privilege to do so. This is what the Levites were doing as Ezra was reading the scripture to Israel. They had questions because they'd never read the Bible before their entire life. That ministry of Ezra and the Levites to the people, we should look at that text more often. Because friends that we're serving now, more and more of our friends have never opened a Bible seriously. Maybe that's you. And there's no shame in that. It's just that God loves you so much and he's written so much in there about how his desire to save you from yourself. And so we want you to know. We want you to know. So in summary, two sentences. This is the tough pill, but I've been saying it multiple times already. God entrusts the sharing of the gospel to his church, right? We hold these treasures in jars of clay. He hands the gospel to his church. The church trusts God with what the gospel accomplishes. God has done his part. How many of you guys know we struggle to do our part? He is perfect. We are not. So by God's grace, we're going to struggle toward a place of faith that he is building his church. Lord Jesus, we need you so badly. We confess not just in this area, but in so many areas, God, our faith is weak and we ask you to grow our faith. Help us to sleep well knowing that you are running your universe. Help us to sleep well knowing that we did our part during the day, sharing the gospel, explaining the gospel, explaining the character of God. God, give us the boldness and the joy that we would naturally overflow sharing about the goodness of God. And that at the end of a day of proclamation, we sleep the way you designed, that we would rest and let you be God. Father, forgive us for our countless sins in trying to shove you off your throne and sit on it ourselves. We love you so much. Please help us to love you more. In the great name of Jesus, we pray. God's people said, love you guys. Have a great week.